Well, I guess we have a number of fathers here this morning, and I trust that this will be meaningful to you. If you have your Bibles with you, will you turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 15? Luke chapter 15. Let me give you the setting of this portion of scripture that we're going to be in this morning. This is a meeting of some tax collectors and some sinners who have come to Jesus to listen to him. Verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. They wanted to know what he had to say. He had a way of talking to individuals that drew their attention and put them at ease. Not so with the others who were gathered there in verse 1 or verse 2. Both the Pharisees and the scribes, they're the lawyers, began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. This was a no-no to the people who were very religious, to the Pharisees, to the people who interpreted the law. And their way of interpreting the law was to add a number of little laws alongside of it to support the point of law that they wanted to focus on. So many little laws. I remember when I was in Israel, just to give you an idea of one of those little laws, we stayed in a hotel in Jerusalem And one day we walked in to the hotel and I noticed a sign that I didn't didn't see when I had walked out. This was Shabbat. This was the Sabbath day. And we walked to the elevator to go up to our room on the eighth floor and the elevator door was open. And we walked in the elevator and we stood there and waited. And it went up to the first floor and the door opened and then it closed. Went up to the second floor, all the way up to the eighth floor. And the door opened and we walked out. Why? So we wouldn't have to push the button on the Sabbath day. Six days shalt thou work, and on the seventh day you rest. That's work. They came to hear Jesus, but they didn't come to listen to him. So he told them this parable, and then the next few verses, this is the parable. What man is there, he said, 
who has 100 sheep and one of them is lost. Will he not go leave his sheep where they are and go and search for that one lost sheep and when he has found him, bring him back rejoicing, bringing him back on his shoulders. And then when he gets home, he calls his friends and his neighbors and says to them, rejoice with me for my sheep that was lost has been found. And Jesus said, I tell you that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who returns than for 99 righteous individuals who need no repentance. I'm sure that when he said that last phrase, his focus shifted from the tax collectors and the sinners. And when he said there is more joy over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people and I think he's looking at the Pharisees, 99 of them who need no repentance. In their own eyes, they need no repentance. And what woman, he says, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one of them, does she not light a lamp, sweep out the house, and keep looking until she has found that one silver coin. And then she says to her neighbors and friends, Come and rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. And Jesus said, And I tell you, in the same way, there is joy among the angels of heaven over one sinner who repents. You notice how similar those two scenarios are? A man, a woman. Hundred sheep, lost one. Ten coins, lost one. The man finds the sheep, calls his friends and neighbors, and says, rejoice with me. And the woman searches for the coin, and when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors and says, rejoice with me. I have found my sheep which was lost. I have found my coin which was lost. And that brings us to verse 11. 
And he said, a man had two sons. Man had two sons. Now you know that even if those sons had been twins, they would have been different. And we see right away that there's a younger one, so the other one must be older. Now, when you have a younger son and an older son, then you have a big difference. I was raised with a younger son. Yay. That's a burden. <laughs> he turned out very well, but he was a burden when he was a kid. A man had two sons. That's a big responsibility. Dads, fathers, sons are a big responsibility. So are daughters. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, Give me the share of the estate that falls to me. Wow. That's quite a request. Father, give me a share of the estate that I've got coming to me. Now, according to the Old Testament, the older son gets an extra share. But when there's only two sons, the older son gets two-thirds, the younger one gets one-third. And I have a particular version of Scripture at home that I don't really agree with. It says that the son said to his father, give me my share of the estate before you die. I don't think he wanted his father to die. He wasn't thinking about his father. He was thinking about himself. He was thinking about the money. Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. Now, you know the estate's going to be valued at its present value, not at some date far off in the future. They don't know what the estate's going to be worth then. So he divided his wealth between them. We are not told in Scripture what the thoughts were that were going through the father's mind. What was he thinking about? Should I give him the money that he asks for? Should I just give him what he wants? And you notice that in the first two scenarios, they went and looked for that which was lost. This father didn't look for what was leaving. He didn't go search for him. Just let him go. That's why in my Bible, the publishers have written in a space between verse 10 and verse 11 that says the prodigal son. 
as if he is the star of scene three in the story. No, he's not the star. I think the father is. I'm sure the father is. He divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered the estate with loose living. He was doing what he wanted to do. And when he left, he left with his father's money. Got it all together. And he went on a solo journey. We move from a selfish request to a solo journey all by himself to a far country where no one knew him. They didn't know who his father was. They didn't know who his brother was. He could make friends. He could get along by himself. I know he could. One morning when I was 10 years old, I had planned that afternoon, it was a Saturday, that afternoon to go see the Chicago Cubs play the St. Louis Cardinals, would happen to be my favorite team, the Cardinals, not the Cubs. And I got a call about 8.30 in the morning from the mother of two friends that I was going to the ball game with. The boys came down sick. I think they have the flu. So they're not going to be going to the ball game today. Oh, broke my heart. I wanted to see the Cardinals play. So I went and talked to my dad and I said, you know, my brother, Clyde, Clyde would like to go to the ball game. He said, really? My brother's three years younger than I am. Three years and a couple of months. Younger than I am. So he was only seven. I was ten. And my dad says, you know how to get there? <laughs> you know how to get to Wrigley Field from here? I said, sure. I said, you go over to the park. That's two short blocks from our house. Take the 5A bus uptown. It goes all the way up to 63rd and South Park. You get off at 63rd and South Park, walk across the street, go up the L, get on the Howard Street Express, and it takes you north until somebody says, Cubs ballpark, and then you get off. Nothing to it. Well, okay. Okay. So I don't think it was a big deal, this boy going off to, him, to a far country where nobody knew him. We didn't know anybody at the ballpark. But there was an old guy that behind us that was kind of fascinated with the two of us. Because I had 
purchase box seats for my brother and I. I had a paper route. I had money. <laughs> and uh, this guy fed us through the whole ball game. Two dogs here. Two Cokes here. It was great afternoon. Yeah, this young man could go by himself and no one knew him. And there, verse 13, the second part, there he squandered his estate with loose living. That quickly. The pivot point is in, right in the middle of a verse. He had all of his money and he went to a far country and the second part of the verse is he squandered his estate. Oh. So quickly. Well, when he left, he left with the money. And he was so glad that he had the money to leave with. But we'll find out in a little bit that he um, left with something more than the money. He left with something that he needed, but he didn't know he needed it until he needed it. And before he left, he just tucked it away inside, unconsciously doing so. But there it was. And there it was until he needed it. And he squandered it. And he didn't have that money any more. But he wasn't alone. I mean, he could make friends. He had a great personality. He must have. Or at least he thought he did because he had a lot of friends all of a sudden. In fact, the writer of Proverbs gives us a little bit of insight right here. Proverbs 19.4, wealth adds many friends. You've got money and your friends know about it. Oh my goodness. Young ball players or young athletes, no matter what sport they get into, and they sign with some professional team, as soon as they sign that contract and get their first check, they'll find out they've got more relatives than they ever knew about. Somebody wants something. Well, he found friends. Wealth adds many friends. Proverbs 18.24 says, A man with too many friends comes to ruin, really. 
Why? Sin. It was a selfish, self-centered, egotistical request. I want my share of our wealth and I want it now. I want it all. I want it now. Give me what I've got coming to me. So he went off. He was sinning against his father and against his brother and against the whole farm. He just wanted to get off the farm. But there's one thing about sin that we need to know. Sin will take you farther than you'll want to go. Slowly but wholly taking control. Sin will keep you longer than you'll want to stay. And sin will cost you far more than you'll want to pay. And he paid for it. He lost it all. He squandered it all. And his father didn't stop him, didn't go hunt for him. But I think he prayed. In fact, I'm sure of it. If it had been my son, I'd have been praying. And one of the things that he prayed may have been some words from a song that I don't know all of it, but I know a couple of lines. Come home, my child, for the way is rough and steep. And the things you find out there You cannot keep. Come home, my child. Now, when he had spent everything, verse 14, a severe famine occurred. Now, famines take a long time to become a famine. You have to have a long dry spell. You have have to have crops that don't mature. You have to have a lack of grain in a country like that. Unless, of course, it came like the storm that caught Jonah when he was running away from God. It happened all of a sudden. Because Jonah tells us that God took a storm and threw it into the middle of the sea and it came there that quickly. They had no idea. I don't think he had any idea there was a famine coming. I think that famine was of God. And he became impoverished. He had no money, he had no food, 
And so he was smart enough to know, hey, I need to get a job. And so he went and got a job with a man who hired him and sent him out into his fields to feed hogs. Now remember, this boy is Jewish. He's got to be. Jesus is telling the story. This boy is Jewish. They don't eat pork. Pigs are something that is, they're an unclean animal as far as the Jews are concerned. He shouldn't even been in their presence, let alone feeding them. But there he was, this nice Jewish boy, sitting out in the open field with hogs that are running around and he's gathering up these pods and throwing them toward the hogs that are coming anywhere near him. My birth father raised hogs, but he raised them in the woods And he just threw food out there in the woods. If they wanted it, they could come get it. I don't know how good the meat was. I never ate any of it. So I don't imagine these hogs growing up out in the middle of a field did any better. So there he is, feeding swine. Verse 16, and he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. He longed to eat what they were eating. I don't think he was eating it. I think he was starving. But look what he does. But when he came to his senses, when he came to his senses, the first thing he thought about was home and his father. Actually, first thing he thought about was food and his father. (laughs) His father's hired men. It's hard to be a father. Very difficult. To be a dad. It's a heavy responsibility. Fathers are supposed to be the leaders in their home. They're supposed to be devoted husbands. They're supposed to be the pastor teacher of the home. If you're a father here this morning, you know how important you are to your home and to your children. I trust that you do. It is an awesome responsibility. There is Christ, and then there is the husband, father. He is under Christ. He has the responsibility of those who are under him. 
there's some scripture that fathers ought to know. One of them is Ephesians 6.4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I think King James says, in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, which means the same thing, just two phrases turned around there. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Instruction is for what they need to know. Now, I've done this with the Sunday school class on Sunday morning. There are three pieces of the core of all education. Something you need to know, something you need to be, and something you need to do. That's all there is. There aren't any other outcomes. There aren't any other results. You either know something you didn't know before, you are one kind of a person that you weren't before, and you do something you could not do before. And that's the job of the father. Instruction. Teaching the children what they need to know. That is the word of God and the God of the word. One in whom they can put their faith and their trust. When the spirit of God begins to move them to receive Jesus Christ as their savior. And then to grow in the knowledge of the Lord. Instruction for knowledge. God, his word, and dad's, your love for both of them. God and his word. Discipline. This means that you nurture them. This doesn't have anything to do with punitive discipline. You don't beat them with rods. You nurture them. You exhort them. You teach them what the Word of God says between right and wrong. Through godly biblical principles, not rules and regulations that somebody came up with. When I was a very young adult, a lot of people were wearing pants that were flared on the bottom. Cowboys used to wear them all the time. But there were people, preachers, that said, that's a sign of rebellion. Really? The bottom of my pants legs are a sign of rebellion? Come on. But that was a rule. That was a regulation. But it didn't come from the Bible. Bible. 
rules and regulations that are non-biblical or merely personal dictates, you're not going to do that. Or you shouldn't do that. Or not in my house, you can't do that. It has nothing to do with the child's character. That's legalism. God is a God of grace. Colossians 3.21, Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Meaning the child is never sure what's going to make dad happy. I mean, one day something's okay with him. The next day it's not okay with him. One time he feels this way and the next time he feels that way. The best thing you can do for your children so that you don't exasperate them is to be consistent. Be consistent. Be the same every day. That's what God is. He never changes. His expectations don't change. Be predictable and be consistent and say yes more often than you say no. So you can structure things so that you can say yes more than you say no. How to do that? By nurturing them by godly examples and biblical examples. So that your child can say when they're forced to make a decision, they're out with their friends. I know dad will disapprove of this, so I'm not going to do it. I know that this is okay with dad, so I'm going to go ahead and do it. Dad's consistent, dad's reliable. I'm going to respond this way. He will not react differently from one time to another unless there is a good reason for doing so, which he will share. I had a lot of people in this church besides my father. My father who taught me how to serve in a church. I mean serve. See those window frames over there? They're made out of steel. Yeah. Steel. I remember when they were tied in little bundles dumped out of the back of a dump truck and a sand pile out here in the northeast corner. And then they, there they laid until they were needed. And they were rusting like crazy. And my dad woke up one Saturday morning and said, Don, get up, we're going down to the church. And what are we going to do down church? 
Well, those steel frames have come in. I said, what steel frames? Weren't you on the building committee? Yeah, I was on the building. Didn't you want aluminum windows? Yeah. Well, are the guys that voted for the steel windows, are they going to be there steel brushing those steel windows and getting the rust off of them? Eh, probably not. Well, I don't want to do that. Well, yeah, because I ask you. And besides, we're not doing it for them. We're not even doing it for the church. We're doing it for the Lord because I feel that that is what he wants me to do. And I want you to help me do it. And so we came and brushed and brushed and brushed. So when they painted them, they all looked pretty good. That's great. I'm glad. I don't know if any of you were here when there were theater-type seats in here, you know, the kind that go up and down and so on. I probably carried in from a big semi-truck parked out there probably a fourth of all the theater seats in here because there were three other guys helping me. Oh, taught me to serve. Why? Because it was the right thing to do. Pastor Sam, who gave me a lot of help, advice, access to his library. When we moved into this building, it was, well, that was the church office, and then the next was his office, and the rest was the library. And I could go in there any time I stopped by the church as I'm going to read a book. That was always good. Back when the church was located on uh, Highland Street in Hammond, from the back part of the church to the parsonage was maybe 20 feet. And if I was there and he didn't have time for me, he'd say, Don, you want a job? I said, sure. He said, go in the next room, you find a pile of material in there, letters and envelopes. Trifold those letters and stick them in the envelopes and lick those envelopes and pile them up. And uh, they're ready to mail out when you stamp them. I said, okay, I can do that. And afterwards, Don, how about lunch? Sure, let's go to the house. Walk in the house, Don, here are four slices of bread. I want you to butter one side of each of those slices of bread, okay? Do that. He's slicing the onion. Great big sweet onions, not that big. Big slices in the middle. Onion sandwiches. You think I didn't trust that man? I trusted that man. I loved those onion sandwiches. There was one of the elders, he taught teachers training class. 
And so I had to take teacher's training class quite a bit because it was supplied by Evangelical Teacher Training Association. And so I had to take that class before they'd give me a class to teach. And another guy who was the father of one of my good friends, uh, he taught me how to, using the word of God, step by step, show a person, face to face, person to person, how they could come to know Jesus Christ as their savior. And that's one methodology that I had never forgotten. Those other fathers had a big impact on my life. Well, we've got to finish up here. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? Thinking about food. And I am dying here with hunger. Food, his father, and the men that worked for him. Listen to his plan, and then how he executed it. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. A long way off, his father saw him. He knew his son. He knew his son's way of walking. That's my son. And he felt compassion for him and ran and embraced and kissed him. Wow. He's glad to have me back. You know, I was going to finish what I was going to say. But maybe I don't have to do that now. Maybe it's going to work out just fine. No, that was Satan talking. Verse 21, And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. What he said he was going to do, he did. That means he had confessed his sin to God. When he used the word heaven, he meant God. The Old Testament Jews used the word heaven a lot of times to mean God because they wouldn't use God's Yahweh name, God's I am name. So they would just say heaven. I have sinned against heaven. How did he know? His father had taught him that. 
when you sin, it's always against God. When you sin, it could well be against an individual as well. And you need to ask forgiveness. But, here the coin flips again. The father said to his slaves, quickly, quickly. Bring out the best robe, put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. The one who was away. His father didn't even go to look for him. His father just prayed that he would come back. And he did. And he came back. And they celebrated. Well, we need to celebrate. And just like it was with the first two scenarios about joy in heaven, well, when he came back, that son, and the father said, we have to celebrate, it was because it's shouting time in heaven. A sinner once lost is found. A great father. A son who learned a hard lesson. But a joyous result. Why? It was all done God's way. And that's the way to do everything that we do as believers. God's way. Father, thank you for today. We pray your blessing upon the remainder of the service. Bless this time. We thank you for your word and for the examples that we see. In Jesus' name, amen.